Sometimes since I've been in the garden, I've looked up through the trees of the sky and I've had a strange feeling of being happy, as if something was pushing and drawing in my chest and making me breathe fast. Magic is always pushing and drawing and making things out of nothing. Everything is made out of magic. Leaves and trees, flowers and birds, badgers and foxes and squirrels and people. So it must be all around us. In this garden, in all the places. Welcome to Season by Season with Alexis and Kit, the podcast that celebrates and reforges our connection to nature and the passage of time. It is our hope that through prose, poetry, history, and sound, this podcast will help to inspire your interest in the natural world around us. Together, Kit and I will be sharing observations of the seasons as we see them. We'll be looking through the lens of the 24 seasonal divisions, or mini-seasons as we like to call them, based on the progression of seasons in the traditional Japanese calendar. Now is the season when the weather becomes fine and everything starts to go well, which will be shortening to fine weather. Spanning from May 21st to June 5th, this season is when we anticipate the ripeness of summer. Caterpillars are nibbling away, the safflower blooms are harvested, and the barley ripens in the field. The season of fine weather is preceded by the mini-season, the beginning of summer, and followed by the mini-season, the time of planting grains. This mini-season, Alexis and I find ourselves happily in the garden. Now is a time of growth and blossoms, as well as the time to get down to work, sowing more seeds, preparing for the summer, and even harvesting some of the early crops. Yet, we don't have a destination. As British author and gardener Monty Don says, a garden is like a river. It flows, it's always moving, and it's never the same. It never reaches anywhere other than this moment. With this moment in mind, let's open the gate and see what's in store in the garden. I'll plant and water, sow and weed, till not an inch of earth shows brown, and take a vow of each small seed to grow to greenness and renown. And then someday you'll pass my way, see gold and crimson, balanced star, and catch my garden's soul and say, how sweet these cottage gardens are. In episode two of Season by Season, we shared this quote by author and gardener Peter Lower. May and June, soft syllables, gentle names for the two best months in the garden year. Cool, misty mornings gently burned away with a warming spring sun, followed by breezy afternoons and chilly nights. The discussion of philosophy is over. It's time for work to begin. In this episode, our work lies in the garden. But you know, a garden can take any form. Here in New York City, my garden is indoors. I've got ferns, geraniums, spider plants, a ficus tree, 
and even a calamondin citrus growing, albeit very sadly. On my windowsill, my daffodils bloomed beautifully this season, and the catnip is growing strong. I'm also trying to sprout some seeds. My garden is a garden I eke out and find space for. But from what I understand, Kit, you've just become a recipient to a garden. How exciting. Yes, on May Day, May 1st, I moved into a new home. My first home that has a real dedicated space for a garden. I've always wanted to grow a lemon tree, and it seems like I'll finally have my chance. We now have a great big yard, and there are already lots of plants growing in there. We have a rosemary bush, some lemongrass, some oregano plants, and even onions that were growing from before. My mother-in-law gave us some absolutely beautiful tulips as a housewarming gift for us to plant. There are also two big rose bushes that have some blooms on them. I have to confess, as excited as I was to have a garden, when I first moved in I felt a little overwhelmed. The responsibility that comes with a garden can be intimidating. Oh, I'm surprised to hear that. I know you've done some gardening before. Why do you think you were intimidated? Well, I don't know as much about gardening as I would like. I think especially the rose bushes will need a lot of care. I remember we talked about roses in our third episode, the time of planting grains last year. Yes, and they've always been a favorite of mine, so I feel a real sense of responsibility toward these growing flowers. As Rudyard Kipling said, gardens are not made by seeing oh how beautiful and sitting in the shade. But I've rolled up my sleeves now, and I'm ready to get my hands dirty. I know I have a lot to learn, and you know, I think a garden can be a great teacher. Your garden reminds me of the quote by William Wordsworth. Wisdom is oftentimes nearer when we stoop than when we soar. Hmm, I don't know how near I am to wisdom, but I do like that quote. I'm sure your garden will come along just fine. Yours too. An indoor garden is also lovely. Oh, I know. And a windowsill can hold just as much love as a backyard can. Although, maybe not as much back pain from all the stooping. (laughs) Oh, and I forgot to tell you, there is one plant I was very excited to see. Not in our backyard garden, but at the entryway of our home, there are geraniums growing, just like in your garden. Oh, we have star-crossed geraniums then. And geraniums are flowers that even inexperienced gardeners can grow without trouble. They're very easy to take care of. You know, British designer and writer William Morris said, Red geraniums were invented to show that even a flower could be hideous. But I'm here to say William Morris was wrong. They may not be the most elegant of flowers, but I think geraniums are lovely. Their colorful profusion of petals seem to carry a cheerful disposition somehow. Not only are they easy to care for, they flower for a long time, so we'll be able to enjoy ours long into the summer. And even into the winter, if kept indoors. Most of the plants we call geraniums are technically pelargoniums, but whatever their name, I can see why you like this flower. They love sunny days just like you, Kit. And the geraniums growing in front of my new home are scarlet geraniums, which in the Victorian language of flowers means silliness which also feels just right for me. These flowers don't need to be taken too seriously. As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the earth laughs in flowers. Maybe the geraniums are laughing at William Morris. 
Here's a poem from someone who agrees with us, that geraniums are not hideous, but rather perfect in their own way. Life did not bring me silken gowns, nor jewels for my hair, nor signs of gabled foreign towns in distant countries fair. But I can glimpse beyond my pain a green and friendly hill, and red geraniums aflame upon my windowsill. The brambled cares of every day, the tiny humdrum things, may bind my feet when they would stray, but still my heart has wings while red geraniums are bloomed against my window glass, and low above my green sweet hill, the gypsy wind clouds pass. And if my dreamings ne'er come true, the brightest and the best but leave me lone my journey through, I'll set my heart at rest and thank God for home sweet things, a green and friendly hill, and red geraniums aflame upon my windowsill. I love that poem. The sweetness of everyday things. Maybe that's what I look for when I go into a garden. The image created of being surrounded by flowers at home to set one's heart at rest truly resonates with us, I think. After all, what could be more glorious than a sunny day in a garden? The luxury of all summer's sweet sensation is to be found when one lies at length in the warm, fragrant grass, soaked with sunshine, aware of regions of blossoming clover and a high heaven filled with the hum of innumerous bees. These words from Harriet E. Prescott remind us to take our time to enjoy the beautiful days of summer. Those beautiful days of fine weather are what this season is all about. Although we may have days of fine weather in any season, this season tends to have such good weather that the mini-season takes its name from it. We're in the time of year when we return outdoors. Though it may still be spring on the Gregorian calendar, summer is already in our hearts and we begin to feel more vibrant. I've put away all my sweaters and taken my cooler summer clothing out of the closet. Ah, you bring up a good kigo, or seasonal word for this season. In Japan, this seasonal wardrobe change is known as koromogae, putting away the winter robes and bringing out the lighter summer ones. Yes, I remember we talked about nochi no koromogae, the reverse, in our October episode from last year. I was thinking about that as I pushed my sweaters to the back of the closet. In modern Japan, the day recognized for this change is June 1st. That's the date when students change from their long-sleeved uniforms to their short sleeves, and many companies begin their cool biz campaigns, which is letting workers take off their business jackets in order to allow their air conditioning to be set at a slightly higher temperature, and thereby saving money on cooling. Of course, though we may not have a recognized day for it, we tend to make seasonal wardrobe changes as well, dressing more lightly and in brighter colors when the weather is nice. Dressed in a summer robe, a pleasant breeze wraps me up. A seasonal change of clothing, travelers through the green fields, slight dots in white. That worm-eaten fan looks charming, too. First summer clothes. 
That last haiku reflects the seasonal feeling that after the cold season ends, the old can look new again. Whatever we're wearing, we are glad for the change. The introspective days of cold weather have come to an end, and we feel more active. We want to live in the moment on sunny days, even if that just means taking our lunch to eat outside. We tend to feel invigorated when the skies are clear and the air is warm. The earth was green, the sky was blue. I saw and heard one sunny morn, a skylark hang between the two, a singing speck above the corn. A stage below in gay accord, white butterflies danced on the wing, and still the singing skylark soared, and silent sank and soared to sing. This poem by Christina Rossetti highlights the spiritedness of a fine day. The mention of the Skylark song highlights the natural music of the season. The Skylark song also inspired Percy Bysshe Shelley. His lyrical poem to a Skylark describes the bird's ability to achieve perfect serenity through its song. Here is an excerpt. Hail to thee, blithe spirit, bird thou never wert, that from heaven or near it Pourest thy full heart in profuse strains of unpremeditated art. Higher still and higher from the earth thou springest, like a cloud of fire the blue deep thou wingest, and singing still dost soar, and soaring ever singest. Better than all measures of delightful sound, better than all treasures that in books are found, thy skill to poet were, thou scorner, of the ground. Teach me half the gladness that thy brain must know. Such harmonious madness from my lips would flow. The world should listen then, as I am listening now. Birdsong is such a staple of the season that there's a term for it, the spring chorus. This specifically refers to the melodious bird calls that we hear throughout the day during nesting season. And there are all kinds of birds lending their songs to this chorus. Depending on where you live, you may hear skylarks, thrushes, finches, nightingales, blackbirds, robins, wrens, owls, warblers, pheasants. The list of singing birds goes on and on, it can be quite captivating to sit in one's garden and be serenaded like this. The reason for all these bird calls, which grow particularly vociferous at this time of year, can be due to attracting mates, defending territory, or calling to gather the flock. However, once the nesting season comes to an end and these birds turn their focus to raising new baby birds, there's a noticeable drop-off in birdsong. Gradually, each species of bird drops out of the spring chorus until the chorus disbands entirely. Typically by July, only the most raucous of avian songsters are still singing. So we should enjoy bird song while we can. This poem by Edith Nesbitt may help us do just that. Birds in the green of my garden, blackbirds and throstle and wren, Wet your dear wings in the tears that are springs, and so to your singing again. Birds in my blossoming orchard, chaffinch and goldfinch and lark, preen your bright wings, little happy live things, 
The may trees grow white in the park. Birds in the leafy wet woodlands, cuckoo and nightingale brown, sing to the sound of the rain on green ground, the rain on green leaves dripping down. Fresh with the rain of the Maytime, rich with the promise of June, deep in her heart where the little leaves part, love like a bird sings in tune. In California, this time of year is also the last hurrah for lupins, although in other parts of the country they may still be going strong. As a child, I remember driving past green, lush hills full of purple-blue patches of lupins. I'm not really sure what appealed to me so much about them. After all, in California, we have other beautiful wildflower displays throughout the spring. The yellow-greens of wild mustard, the bright oranges of the California poppy. There was just something about those lupins, though. It reminds me of a poem we shared in episode one last year, perhaps with a little modification for this topic. To pluck is a pity, to leave is a pity. Ah, this lupin. You know, I wonder if your love of lupins has something to do with the children's book, Miss Rumpheus. I remember that was a childhood favorite of yours. It's a chicken and egg question, I think. Which came first? My love of lupins, or my love of Miss Rumpheus? Hmm. Listeners, for those who do not know, this classic children's book, written and illustrated by Barbara Coney, is a wonderful and imaginative tale of making the world beautiful. It's a powerful message of thinking beyond ourselves, and how we can bring joy and beauty to people and the earth. I like to think of this podcast as one way we are helping to make the world more beautiful. You can't see it, but maybe, hopefully, you can feel it. Well then, three cheers for Lupins and Miss Rumpheus. Here's a poem to celebrate. The deep purple and blues of lupines studded amid the dewy greens of the hills, trimmed with the wispy gray and white clouds pinned against the fresh blue of the sky, billowing up and up, mysterious castle in the air of childhood. Beauty aside, it turns out lupins are great for the garden. Not only are they part of the legume family and fix nitrogen in the soil, but they're also edible, the seeds that is. Wow, who knew? Yep, it turns out that lupin seeds, or lupin beans, were consumed throughout the Mediterranean and in South America, eaten by early Egyptian and pre-Incan people, as well as the Romans. Lupin beans are high in alkaloids and are extremely bitter unless rinsed methodically, similar to other legumes. You might see lupins in a garden, Yet, some might say that lupins do best in the wild, along roadsides and cropping up in meadows. I must admit, there is an untamed kind of quality to them in my mind, I suppose. Like the wolf their name originates from. From the car seat I spy, regal lupines, joyful poppies, frenzied mustard, prim buttercups, 
rambling Indian paintbrush, waxy miner's lettuce, dusty asters, alluring magenta thistles, hazy blackberry blossoms. These, the roadside flowers of my dusty home. Speaking of plants from the legume family, this time of year always brings to mind soromame, or sky beans. Most of our listeners probably know them by their more common name, fava beans, or broad beans. Hiding in the forest of broad beans, Peter Pan. Four hands and a bowl. Pop, 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 go the broad beans. Grandma and I sit. This last haiku highlights the act of harvesting broad beans together. Here's a quote about beans by Valerie Phipps. I believe that the energy of humans who touched those beans goes into the beans as well. They become vibrant because of the handling. This vibrancy is something that a machine or harvester doesn't have. From my standpoint, I believe that if food is grown and prepared with love, infused with love, well, it can be the humblest of food, but because it's prepared with love, it's special. Broad beans, infused with love, are eaten the world over, from China and Colombia to Algeria and Vietnam. And, as you might imagine, there's an entire culture to broad beans depending on the country. It's surprising, but actually I've noticed that in European societies there's an association with death and misfortune. For example, in Italy, broad beans are traditionally sown on November 2nd, All Souls Day. The ancient Romans believed that the plant of fava bean was directly linked with the underworld, due to its long roots and stem, and so was also believed to bring the dead back to the world of the living. Interesting. Imagine if Persephone ate the beans instead of the pomegranate. Much less romantic. (laughs) But you know, beans have a great life force to them, don't they? Climbing upwards towards the sky and full of so much energy. Around this time of year, everything is bursting with life. At the same time, in our gardens, that may present itself as a task. Any gardener knows too well. Weeding. White with daisies and red with sorrel, and empty, empty under the sky. Life is a quest, and love a quarrel. Here is a place for me to lie. Daisies spring from damned seeds, and this red fire that here I see is a worthless crop of crimson weeds, cursed by farmers thriftily. But here, unhated for an hour, the sorrel runs in ragged flame. The daisy stands, a bastard flower like flowers that bear an honest name. And here a while, where no wind brings, the baying of a pack of thirst, may sleep the sleep of blessed things, the blood too bright, the brow accursed. We all have a bit of a love-hate relationship with weeds, I imagine. But you know, it's good to keep in mind that A weed is simply a plant that wants to grow where people want something else. In blaming nature, people mistake the culprit. Weeds are people's idea, not nature's. There are all sorts of quotes and philosophies surrounding weeds and weeding. Scientist Rachel Carson notes, Our attitude towards plants is a singularly narrow one. 
If we see any immediate utility in a plant, we foster it. If, for any reason, we find its presence undesirable or merely a matter of indifference, we may condemn it to destruction forthwith. The bard himself actually had a few things to say about weeding. Sadly, a bit more of a traditional view of weeds themselves, but nevertheless, it's nice to see how plants, wanted or unwanted, inspire us. Here are a few excerpts. Why, he was met even now, as mad as the vexed sea, singing aloud, crowned with rank fumiter and furrow weeds, with harlocks, hemlock, nettles, cuckoo flowers, darnel, and all the idle weeds that grow in our sustaining corn. Search every acre in the high-grown field. Virtue? A fig. Tis in ourselves that we are thus or thus. Our bodies are our gardens, to which our wills are gardeners, so that if we will plant nettles or sow lettuces, set hyssop, and weed up thyme, supply with one gender of herbs, or distract it with many, either to have it sterile with idleness or manured with industry. Why? The power and corrigible authority of this lies in our wills. I suppose one of the reasons we weed is to protect the plants we particularly care about. We want them to flourish. Weeding is one way of protection, but around this time of year, you may see another type of protection, particularly of fruits. It's not a common sight here in the United States, but in Asia, the act of putting protective bags on developing fruits is a common practice. In Japanese, this seasonal word is known as fukurokake, literally putting on bags. It's particularly done for soft stone fruits, such as peaches, plums, and apricots, as well as apples. For apples, shortly after the first fruit have formed, when they are pea-sized, you thin fruits by removing all but the biggest, strongest fruits on each cluster. This allows the fruit to grow larger and encourages a bloom the following year. After thinning your fruit, it is then ready to be bagged. When bags are placed on each fruit, it's done in a way that allows room for growth. Then you close the bag with a wire and so the apple receives no sunlight for three months or more. The technique keeps out pests and significantly extends the storage life and flavor of the fruit. It also leaves apples a creamy white color. In the fall, farmers again climb the ladders to carefully remove the outer bag. Then they try to give the apple as much sun as possible to increase the sugar level. This might mean pruning back some leaves or branches. It's a very labor-intensive process, but apparently results in a delicious apple that keeps well. Perhaps our gardeners might want to try it out for themselves this year. Pear and peach alike decorated with bags. The swallow flies above the field. The red paper of hanging bags, the bungalow. With sharp edges, fruit bags, dampened by the rain.
It isn't just fruits on trees that are growing, but fruits closer to the ground too. I'm sure many of us may already have a tomato plant happily growing in our gardens just about now. Maybe the yellow flowers have burst into bloom, or perhaps even a few cute little green fruits have begun to form. Here in the United States, tomatoes are the most popular garden vegetable, even though they are, yes, actually a fruit. Here's a few tips for a tomato planting. First, be sure to choose the right plant. There are all sorts of varieties for all sorts of climates. Some for growing in pots, others for growing in the ground. For example, here in the Foggy Bay area, gardeners might want to avoid what is known as beefsteak tomatoes. They do much better in areas with humid summers where nighttime temperatures are high. Maybe where you live, Alexis. A better tomato plant for you, Kit, might be red cherry tomatoes. They tend to grow vigorously in your climate. Mmm, and I love their gentle sweetness. Next, be sure you plant tomatoes deep. This helps them to develop strong roots. And since tomatoes are such heavy drinkers, strong roots are important. Tomatoes also remind me of big caterpillars that come and eat the fruits. They are bright green with black and white stripes. Cute, but not cute at the same time. Definitely not a friend of tomatoes. Ah, you bring up another charming aspect of summer days in the garden. During this time of year, there's a lot of wildlife. We see caterpillars, bees buzzing, maybe a lizard or two, and ever a favorite garden visitor, ladybugs. Ladybugs, or ladybirds as they're also called, are among the best friends of gardeners because of their natural pest control abilities. Ladybirds love to eat aphids, which could otherwise be harmful to plants. In fact, here in California, these beetles have been used by farmers on a large scale to protect local citrus crops. Especially in these warmer months, it's not unusual to see ladybugs out and about in large numbers. These gatherings of ladybugs aren't called a swarm, but rather a bloom of ladybugs. A bloom? How fitting. Listeners, if you'd like to attract ladybirds in your garden, you should know that they love pollen-rich plants like angelica, fennel, calendula, or marigolds. Interestingly, in Japan, these insects are called tentomushi, or way of heaven beetle, and they're considered good luck. And why not? Not only are ladybirds beneficial to the garden, there's something delightful and even cute about those shiny red wings with black spots. Here's a poem about just that. Ladybird, you're very neat, from tiny head to little feet. I like your coat of red and black. I like your clean and shining back. Do you polish it each night to make it shine so gay and bright? Or do you keep a tiny fay who rubs it up for you each day? Beneath your shiny back there lie the gauzy wings with which you fly. You're spreading them. Oh, please don't go. There's such a lot I want to know. Your house is burning, do you say? Ah, uh, well, of course, you mustn't stay. The ladybirds are welcome visitors to almost any garden. But let's welcome another friend and take some time for Hiro's Corner, written by our friend Hiroaki Sato 
and narrated, as always, by Ed von Atterkass. The Chinese solar term given to me this time is shouman or shaoman, which means small full or lesser fullness of grain by the solar calendar. This year, this occurs from May 21st to June 5th. For the Kigo for this solar term, Alexis and Kit suggested three, Ango, Banryoku, and Kusabue. Of these three, Ango, peaceful residence, is a Zen term that comes from the Sanskrit Varsa, so an assemblage of Kigo terms explains. It originally referred to the Buddhist practice in India of a monk staying in his room to concentrate on the least murderous thoughts. Because it's the early summer when the rain falls and plants and insects grow, so that if you step outside, you are likely to kill sentient beings unnecessarily. This meditative training is done in the winter too, and it also comes in different expressions. For example, Basho wrote in 1689, confining ourselves in a waterfall a while in early summer. Here, Basho and his companion, Sora, didn't really confine themselves behind a waterfall. He is saying that when they found themselves in a cave behind a waterfall during their travels to the interior, they felt like they were monks training in the waterfall. 300 years later, Mazaoka Shiki wrote, Summer confinement. His hope is to carve Buddhas. Shiki may have been thinking of Enku, a monk famous for walking all over Japan during the Edo period, carving Buddhas out of wood. And so far, 5,300 of these have been found. Meanwhile, the seasonal word kusabue, grass reed, appears to have sprung up relatively recently. You can't find any haiku using this kiko among the old masters. In the United States, the grass reed may correspond to grass whistle. Also, with a grass reed, you may not be able to turn out a melodious tune with a leaf of grass or of a tree, but you're expected to produce something more than a whistle, if you're good at it. I was never able to do so. I was recently talking via email with the most famous woman haiku poet in Japan today, Mayazumi Madoka, and she's written this. In the midst of a travel, a grass reed sharply echoes. Here's another very grassy poem by Shimazaki Tozan who lived from 1872 to 1943. Near the old castle in Komoro, under white clouds a wanderer sorrows. Green chickweeds yet to flower, young grasses aren't enough to sit on. Along the silver cloth hillside, soft snow flows melted by the sun. Though there's warm sunlight, no fragrance fills the fields. Spring haze still shallow, the wheat is colored faintly blue. Several groups of travelers hurry along a path in the field. As darkness falls, Asama fades with a sad song on Saku grass reed. Waves adrift in Chikuma River. I go up to an inn near the shore, drinking a muddy sake, muddiness and all. I soothe my grass pillow a while. Here's some explanatory notes on that poem. Uh, Komoro is a city in Nagano. The castle was originally built in 1487. Today, only the main gate, a few other structures, and stone walls of the castle remain, although it was in use to the end of the Edo period. 
Asama is an active volcano northeast of Komoro, about uh, 2,500 meters high, almost straight north of Mount Fuji. The Chikuma River is upriver of the Shinano River that flows north and pours into the Japan Sea. In other words, the section of river in Nagano is called the Chikuma, the section in Niigata, Shinano. And grass pillow, this is a metaphor for sleeping while traveling. Here's another poem. Song, thoughts of a traveler on Chikuma River. Yesterday it was this way too. Today again it will be like this. Why fret your life away, forever worrying about tomorrow? How many times have I gone down into the valley where dreams of glory and decay will linger, seen the uncertain drift of the river waves, sand-laden water that circles and returns? Ah, what is the old castle saying? What do the waves along the shore reply? Be still and consider the ages gone by, a hundred years are like yesterday. Chikuma River willows are hazy, spring is shallow, the water flows on. Alone I wander over the rocks, binding my sorrow to this shore. The last Kigo, Banryoku, is also new. As a matter of fact, you can pinpoint the year it began, which is 1939, when Nakamura Kusatao, uh, who lived from 1901 to 1983, published his second haiku collection, Hi no Tori, or Firebird, that included the piece that incorporated the word. In the middle of myriad green growths, my child's teeth start to grow. This is one of the most admired modern haiku in Japan, and Kusatao must have liked the word banryoku. In 1946, the year after the terrible war was over, he started his own haiku magazine titled Banryoku. Does the word banryoku mean myriad green growths? Not really. Literally, it means 10,000 green or a great many green. But the Oxford Dictionary says the word green isn't countable unless it's used in the sense of vegetables. And here, green must mean the green leaves of grass and of trees, including those of vegetables, but not exclusively of vegetables. So shall we say 10,000 shades of green or myriad shades of green? Most often, the word is said to have come from a line of a quatrain by the Chinese poet, philosopher, and reformist politician Wang Anshi. Amid myriad green leaves, a spot of red. The spot of red, referring to the red flower or fruit of the pomegranate, if it comes from Wang's poem titled In Praise of Pomegranate Flowers. Either way, and in whatever form, I hope you spot a myriad shade of green this season. Hiro's Corner reminds of the life growing strong in our gardens and all around. Certainly there are thousands of shades of greens, but just like the ladybugs, there are small lives all around us. Let's try to be kind to the insect creatures that come to visit us. Here's a poem which may help us remember. Grass, a thousand little people pass. And all about, a myriad little eyes look out. For there are houses every side where the little folks abide, where the little folks take tea on a grass blade near a tree, where they hold their Sabbath meetings, pass each other giving greetings, 
So remember when you pass through the grass, little folks are everywhere. Walk quite softly, take great care, lest you hurt them unaware. Lest the giant that is you pull a house down with his shoe. Pull a house down, roof and all, killing children, great and small. So the wee eyes look at you as you walk the meadows through. So remember when you pass through the grass. Even the brightest, most lovely days in the garden eventually fade as evening falls. Our day in the garden is coming to a close. A pleasant day in the garden with an old friend must certainly be among the greatest pleasures in life. Thank you for spending the day with me, old friend. This stillness made of azure and veiled with lavender must be my daylight garden where all the pigeons were. Blue dusk upon my eyelids, your drifting moods disclose the moth that is a flower, the wings that are a rose. Make haste, exhale your sweetness, for you must vanish soon. The garden will forget you at rising of the moon. A glory dawns predestined of old to banish you and bind you fast with rainbows and dungeons of the dew. And who will then remember your cool and gossamer art? Ah, never moon may exile your beauty from my heart. Thank you for joining us as we explored an idyllic day in the garden during this season of fine weather. This season, some of the Kigo, or seasonal words, we explored were gardens indoors and outdoors, geraniums, fine weather, koromogae, changing out the clothes for the season, birdsong, skylarks, lupins, soromame, or broad beans, weeds and weeding, fukurokake, or fruit bag hanging, tomatoes, ladybugs and ladybirds, Ango, Banryoku, Kusabue, and Dusk in the Garden. Listeners, what are some other seasonal words you associate with this mini-season? Email your Kigo to our brand new email address, seasonbyseasonpodcast at gmail.com, or feel free to leave a comment on our Facebook page. By the way, have you seen our new website yet? Check it out at seasonbyseason.org 
a special permanent home for this podcast. On this episode, you've heard poems and prose by Francis Hodges Burnett, Edith Nesbitt, Christina Rossetti, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Martha Haskell-Clark, Nakamura Tejo, Yosubu Son, Enomoto Seifu, Alexis, Kakihara Kanigome, Edna St. Vincent Millay, William Shakespeare, Sumio Mori, Toshio Hisaki, Awano Seho, Enid Blyton, Annette Wine, and Grace Hazard Conkling. The poems featured in this podcast are in the public domain or used with permission from their creators. We would also like to thank our poetry readers for this episode. Porfirio Figueroa, Chris Whitaker, Gail Wine, Anne Chow, Mara Rosencrantz, Jason Berner, James Paul Gregory, Vicky Kagawan, Bruce Kaplan, Cyrus Lanthier, and Nikki. We would also like to thank violist Paul Larea of the Catalyst Quartet for his fine weather compositions for this episode. To learn more about him and the quartet, visit our website. We would like to extend a special thanks to Hiroaki Sato for his segment Hiro's Corner and to narrator Ed Von Atterkass. Also, listeners, don't forget our Spotify companion playlists. Alexis and I select various songs for this mini-season Fine Weather, featuring the Kiko we have explored during the episode, or conjuring up feelings this episode brings. Search for Season by Season on Spotify, or access the playlists from our website. This season's playlists include songs by John Denver, Judy Collins, Asako Toki, Pink Martini, Linda Ronstadt, and Ludwig von Beethoven. Discover Fine Weather with us on Spotify. Poet Alfred Austin wrote, The glory of gardening, hands in the dirt, head in the sun, heart with nature. To nurture a garden is to feed not just the body, but the soul. Good luck in your new garden kit. Have fun getting your hands dirty. Thanks. Listeners, we hope you are enjoying your own gardens too. And please join us again for our next episode, Summer Solstice. See you in another season. <laughs>